0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio
1: studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yes, yes, it's true. Hi there. Welcome. It's Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 126, Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell here with you. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll talk with a couple of talented authors this week in the second half of the podcast. Hollywood attorney and author Terry Cheney will talk with us about her newest book, Modern Madness. She kind of took the world by storm with her last book, Manic. It became the basis for the uh, Netflix series with Anne Hathaway, Modern Romance. And her new book, uh, she subtitles An Owner's Manual. And some pretty hands-on details about dealing with mental illness Uh, For those dealing with it and those close to people who are dealing with it. And so that's coming up a little bit later on. But we get things underway with a conversation with the talented actor, comedian, and author, Michael Ian Black. You know him from all kinds of television shows, from uh, Ed to the Celebrity Poker Showdown, Wet Hot American Summer. But he's also an author of a wonderful new book called A Better Man. A mostly serious letter to my son, and Michael offers some great advice for both parenting, and uh, well, what the state of manhood is today in America. Michael, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Rich. Yeah, I love this book so much. As as the dad of a a six-year-old, uh, it was such a powerful read and an honest book. And and I know it was inspired by your son turning 18, but but also by what uh, all of us have been concerned with for many years, and that's this. Uh, epidemic of school shootings in this country and the fact that well, it always seems to be a young man.
2: That's the thing that really jumped out at me after the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting was the fact that it's always a young man. It's always uh, a male pulling the trigger. And I just asked the obvious question, why? Why is it always one sex as opposed to the other? And it seems like such an obvious question so obvious that I, I hadn't heard anybody even ask it. Uh, so I started asking, and I wrote an op-ed about it for the New York Times. And then I was asked to write a book about being a guy, and so I did. I was reluctant to because I just felt like, oh, I'm not an expert. What do I know about this stuff? Um, but as you said, I had a son who was about to graduate high school, and I thought maybe maybe I could be of some some service to him.
1: Now, you say in the book that you don't like the term toxic masculinity. Why is that?
2: Because I don't feel like we have a healthy definition of masculinity to start with. (laughs) So the term, you can affix any negative term to it, um, and that'll become the kind of default term for masculinity. So it's not that guys don't display toxic behavior. Of course we do. But. Because we don't really have a model of what it looks like to just be a healthy man, uh, we don't really know. When you say to somebody like, you know, be a man, which is unfortunately something people say, nobody really can answer what that means. Um, So I don't like the term toxic masculinity because I don't think it contrasts with anything. And I wish we had a healthy masculinity to contrast it with.
1: You talk about the fact that you you didn't really realize... Maybe that you were a man in all the senses of the word until you became a dad. And and boy, that rang true for me. And I, I came to fatherhood late in life. I was 55 when my son was born. Yeah. (laughs) And, and man, you nailed it with that, that car ride home from the hospital. I have never gripped the steering wheel any tighter (laughs) in my life than that.
2: (laughs) It's a terrifying moment. I mean, you've gone from, you know, not being responsible for a tiny helpless creature to suddenly being entirely responsible (laughs) for a tiny helpless creature. And yeah, that moment when you just feel like everything is at maximum peril, you've just become a father. And one of your first tasks is transporting your partner uh, and this little newborn home. Uh, It's the scariest car ride I think most (laughs) men will will
1: ever have. Uh You went through a, a childhood with some challenges in terms of your parents. Uh, they broke up. Uh, your dad was, I think, like a lot of dads of that time period, um, someone who had a hard time saying the words, I love you. You know now that he did. And then you also lost him at a young age. My mom died when I was 12. Your dad uh, died when you were 12. And, and that's something you, you never quite recover from.
2: The weird thing about it is that You know, that was now 37 years ago, and uh, you don't recover from it. I mean, I still feel like I'm wrestling with his death to this day. My mom died three years ago after a long illness, and maybe because she was older, maybe because I was older, I still carry her with me, obviously, but her death doesn't haunt me the way his does um and yeah i mean the book that i wrote to my son it's a letter to him but in a lot of ways i feel like it's also a letter back to my dad as i talk about what it means for me to be a man um and wishing that i could have had that conversation with him
1: yeah and without a dad in the picture when you're going through those incredibly challenging years of of being a teenager and body changing and the world changing for you, that kind of leaves it up to yourself. You have to do it alone to figure out at that age what it means to be a man. And and who knows then? I barely know now.
2: (laughs) Well, I I think that's true to a certain extent. I also think that there are plenty of um, single-parent households headed by women that raise perfectly great men um, and women who give a lot of advice and inspiration two boys as they become men. I also, I also think that it is important to have male role models in your life. Um, I didn't really have that. I grew up, my parents divorced, as you said, because my mom became involved with another woman. So I grew up in a lesbian household, which could have been fine as it happened. That relationship was, was abusive in a lot of ways. Um, And they were both very angry a lot of the time, and in particular, a lot of their anger was directed at men in general. So I grew up with uh, a kind of, if you will, toxic femininity that Mm. had a lot of anger towards men. Um, And while I consider myself like just a dyed-in-the-wool ardent feminist, the feminism that I think they were displaying or trying to display wasn't really that healthy. Uh, So I grew up with a lot of like mixed emotions about being a guy and really had to struggle a long time to just kind of figure out like how to be comfortable in my own skin.
1: We're talking with Michael Ian Black about his new book, A Better Man. You discussed the importance of empathy. How do we teach that to young men and young women for that matter? Is it about modeling? How does that work best?
2: I think modeling absolutely is important. Model the behavior that you want to see in your kids. That's not always easy. You know, it's the old do as I say, not as I, or do as I, what is it?
1: <laughs>
2: do as I say, not as I do, you know, when we point out our own hypocrisies, I've been thinking a lot about how to teach empathy. Um, and the best answer that I can come up with right now, and I'm sure there are better answers out there, because I'm not an expert, is to start with something that everybody has a, within their uh, capacity to do, which is simply to listen, simply to to listen and take at face value what other people are telling you. If they're telling you they're in pain, if they're telling you they're experiencing something, hear them un- without being defensive about whatever it is. Understand that most people are telling you the truth most of the time. And if you can just sort of take their words and and hear their experience, I think any functioning human being will naturally feel empathy for whatever they're going through, Um, because in essence, we all go through the same stuff time and time again. So if we can take that moment and hear somebody, I think that's the doorway to empathy.
1: Can you explain what you mean in the book? I thought this was a really interesting phrase. You said there are more ways to be a woman than there are to be a man.
2: Yeah, because we are so We've spent the last 50 or 60 years, because of feminism, expanding the notion of what a woman can be in this world. We have been teaching girls and young women correctly that they can be anything, that they can do anything, that they can uh, be empowered and strong, but also be nurturing and also be mothers and also be whatever they want to be. That's great. That's a really welcome message that was missing for young women for so long, but the model for guys hasn't really expanded in the same way. We still teach guys, we want you to be strong. We want you to be tough. We want you to be independent, but we don't necessarily give guys the same space to be nurturers, to be carers, to be be empathetic. Um, And so the, the, the ways to be a guy are in a way more constricted uh, than there than there are to be, than, than, than there are ways to be women. Um, and all, my, all I'm doing in this book is saying, let's open that up. Let's expand the definition of masculinity to include those attributes and traits that we so often uh, give to women, but, but don't give to men.
1: Well, you say manhood is usually thought of as a, a grim business. And and when you talk about no sissy stuff, suck it up. I, I laughed out loud in reading that because I've said many times through the years, I'm in many ways glad that I was not born with the macho gene. I, I never felt the need, uh, at least uh, as much as some others did, to, to prove that kind of thing. And I, I have a terrible tolerance for pain. I still do today. I don't like pain. I try to avoid it whenever I can. But that's not the message that we've often given young men
2: no we te- we tell them to be in a sense invulnerable um that any time you that you uh demonstrate pain you're demonstrating weakness which is the same as basically saying uh you're being as I, as I say a sissy and that's the first rule in manhood, no sissy stuff um it's a phrase that i stole from a book called the 49% majority and it's true for so many of us that If you display any kind of vulnerability or weakness, you're kind of made fun of or mocked or told to be a man or suck it up or whatever it is, and we learn from a very early age to hide our pain. Now, I don't have a problem with, like, dudes sucking it up at times and women sucking it up at times because sometimes life sucks and you just have to kind of slog through it, of course, but that doesn't mean that there aren't moments when we can't sort of say to somebody, hey, I'm hurting, I need some help, I need a hand, I need a hug, whatever it is, doesn't make you any less of a man to say those things. In a lot of ways, it demonstrates a tremendous amount of strength to let your guard down enough to say, I
1: need help. We talked about violence committed by young men in schools and in other places in this country, and you mentioned that um, men are more prone to violence, and a lot of that is rooted in different levels of fear.
2: I think almost all of it is rooted in fear. Yeah, part of it has to do with, you know, just the way men have always behaved in all cultures over over the globe, with um historically because historically men have been enlisted to protect territory and to provide for others. Um but rooted in all of that is the idea that somebody is going to take your stuff like that's (laughs) sort of the fundamental fear that guys feel like somebody's going to come along and punch you in the face and take all your stuff. But then there's also other fears, like the fear of being thought of as less than there's the fear of being thought of as uh, or there's the fear of like losing face. There's there's so many fears that guys have because we're so invested in propping up our own invulnerable images that, as I say, like we erect these walls around us to protect ourselves, and most of the time, like those walls aren't doing us much good by the time we get into even adolescence and adulthood, like they're, they're they I think of it like the uh, trash compactor scene in Star Wars where the walls just start closing in, and we're just stuck in this muck.
1: I love your uh, your idea of the infinite axis access, uh, access of manliness. I need that in a graph.
2: <laughs> it would be a very long graph. The infinite axis of manliness is just like an imaginary line that you could assign anything from this planet and put it on that line according to how macho or manly it is. Um, And what's funny is everybody can do this because we all speak this language so fluently. We all understand, for example, that drinking coffee is somehow more macho than drinking tea. Why should that be? But we know that it's the case. Uh, we know that certain colors are more macho. We know that, um, you know, lifting weights is more macho than jumping rope. Like we know all of this and you can think of literally anything and put it on that infinite axis of manliness and and have some sense of where it belongs. And chances are, if you ask somebody, they would agree with your assessment of it. It's a strange phenomenon that we all speak this language of masculinity so well, and yet we all struggle to identify in words what it means to be a man.
1: One of the classic examples of masculinity is the self-made man, and you talk about the mythology Of that and and how really none of us, especially those who are successful, are self-made.
2: Yeah, and the phrase comes from the mid-19th century uh, when a Kentucky senator named Henry Clay was giving a speech on the Senate floor uh, uh, basically about um, protectionism for British uh, imports. And I'm going to get this wrong because it's been a few minutes since I looked at it, but he was basically saying, we need to protect our self-made men, meaning his Kentucky uh, cotton producers from the British industrialists who had superior technology at the time. Um, but what he neglected to say was that those fortunes that he was talking about, the self-made men, were all created on the backs of slaves. Um there was no self made man, even in the earliest example of the usage of the phrase. It's a funny thing when we talk when we think about American mythology and the American self made man. Um there it, it, it there don't seem to be very many of them. People who really rose from nothing and attained something remarkable. In fact, even Frederick Douglass, who probably could lay the greatest claim to that title wrote an essay about the self-made man and said it was all nonsense.
1: We're talking with Michael Ian Black. His book is A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son. And and in Raising Our Sons, you talk about uh, helping them discover meaning and purpose in their lives. But also that's not enough to, to really fulfill your destiny as a man and as a person. It's about sharing your inspiration with others and then being open enough to receive their love in return.
2: Yeah, and this is, I feel like the crux of it, and it's a hard thing to articulate without it sounding woo woo and gushy and all of that. But I do think it's true that there's a lot of ways to sort of exist in the world. One of them is as, is, is as a worker bee, and a lot of guys exist as worker bees, you know, and, and there's something really admirable about that and important. We do provide and we do protect we do those things women also now provide and protect but men still see that as a fundamental aspect of who they are but the more you provide and protect and um, you start to realize as you mature that you have some more kind of fundamental needs some of them end up being spiritual and i don't necessarily mean in a religious sense but in the sense that you're yearning for something ineffable something that's out there that you can that you're that gives your life some shape and meaning. And then below that, I think, is this idea of our ultimate purpose here, um, which I guess I do believe is to love. um, But, and I think a lot of guys are able to give, to give love. We are often able to give of ourselves all that we have. It expresses itself in a lot of different ways. But one thing I think guys have a harder time doing and that I think is just as important, if not more important, is being open enough to receive the love of others. So often people are trying to give us that love, but because um, receiving it requires us to lower our defenses, it becomes very hard for us to just welcome what somebody is trying to give. And you know, love is a kind of—it's um, a mutually reinforcing activity that we do. And when we're blocked from receiving it, 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 we also have a harder time giving
1: it. Just thinking about this as you were as you were talking, and I, I teach as high I school. I
2: was babbling, you can say it. I no,
1: no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I teach high schoolers, and and I always say to them. Look, retirement may not be an option for you. The way the world is going, find something to do that you love doing, that you're passionate about. And, and that inspiration is certainly easier to share with others when it is something you care about. But I wonder too, and you make this great analogy. My son went through his Thomas, the tank engine phase. And so you talk about being a being a useful engine and, and are young men more inclined to, to do something in, on a career path That's going to be more utilitarian, that's going to earn money and help you take care of a family than to follow that inspiration. If it's something, you know, like the world of theater, for instance, that might be a little more dicey.
2: Yeah, I'm of two minds about this. You know, I'm somebody who went into the theater. I mean, I became an actor, um, which was always going to be dicey. I always knew it was going to be dicey. And. I was willing to accept that risk when I was 16, 17 years old because, you know, 16, 17 year olds are willing to assume a lot of risk. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for somebody who goes to work at a job that maybe they don't love. They're doing it because they have an obligation to others. I think there's, that's perfectly fine and honorable and good. Um, but I also think We raise boys and girls to a certain extent, but but boys especially, by asking them, "What are you going to be when you grow up?" And we don't ask them, "What do you think is going to make you happy when you grow up?" Mm. Um, And those are two different questions. They're related, I think, but they're different. One of them is encouraging you to be a worker, to go out there and be a, you know, quote-unquote, contributing member of society, and we need. We need that, of course. The other one suggests what you were suggesting, the idea of following what really inspires you and can get you out of bed in the morning with a spring in your step. Those aren't necessarily the same. The answers to those two questions aren't necessarily the same things, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Like you can be somebody who goes to work as a bookkeeper, and in your spare time, you know, you paint Civil War figurines. Whatever it is, Mm. those are both important, and we should honor both of those things. And and I think we should be asking our kids, what do you think will make you happy when you grow up?
1: Michael, as a teacher, uh, I want to thank you for your your work through the years and your vocal support of uh responsible gun laws in this country Uh, having been through some some drills that didn't seem like drills with students uh nothing is scarier uh and something we weren't wasn't in the job description when we signed up to be teachers and it's not in the job description as a parent either to have to tell your kids bad people may want to come do things to you in your school and i i'm so grateful Uh, for you being such a a vocal spokesman out there for what needs to be done in this country to get us on the right path.
2: Well, thank you. I wish I was able to do more other than just raise my voice about it. It's an issue that I've been passionate about since Sandy Hook, which happened about half a dozen miles from my house, Um, and I continue to be passionate about
1: it. Well, the book is an absolutely wonderful read, a better man, a mostly serious letter to my son, it's a great guide for parents of, of young men and young women as well. I, I hope I hope Elijah appreciated it as much as we do. Uh,
2: yeah, he hasn't read it. But, you know, there's always hope that he will. <laughs> Elijah's my son, to whom it is written. So hopefully
1: he will read it. Well, it's a terrific book. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for making time for us this afternoon. Be well, stay safe, and I hope we can talk again down the road.
2: Thanks, my pleasure.
1: That's Michael Ian Black talking about his book, A Better Man. Here on downtown, the podcast will pause for a word from cross insurance and come back
0: Insurance, where security meets strength. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. But
1: it's of course, Petula Clark, the theme song from our daily show, Downtown. But also a song that comes up in Terry Cheney's Tremendous new book entitled Modern Madness, an Owner's Manual. A hands-on look at life with someone and by someone who is dealing with mental illness. A terrific book, and we had a chance to talk about it recently with author Terry Chaney. Terry, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. After reading your book, I I think you'll be uh, at least... Entertained to know that our show is called Downtown and our theme song is Petula Clark's Downtown. <laughs> no, you're
0: kidding. I love it. That's my favorite song.
1: People will have to read the book to understand the story behind it there, but they should anyway. It's a it's a wonderful book. But let's go back a little bit. Were you were you surprised at all by the incredible success of Manic? I was more than surprised. I
0: was shocked and flabbergasted. I never in a million years expected that it would be a bestseller. I just was writing, actually started writing in the mental hospital where I was um, staying for a severe depressive episode. And I found that as I wrote, I got clearer and felt better. And I just kept writing. And seven years later emerged with this book that the mental health world
1: by storm. Well, this new book is uh, its a wonderful guide to understanding uh, people living with mental illness, but also for those people who care for them and are around them as well. And you've said before that mental illness loves secrecy, and so all the more reason yes. for a book like this.
0: Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I really do hope that Modern Madness will uh, be read by family and friends and loved ones of people who are struggling, not just people with a diagnosis, but mental illness touches us all in some way or another. Um, I doubt that there is anyone in your audience that hasn't been affected by loving someone with mental illness or having an illness themselves.
1: Well, the book is broken up into several different sections here, and in the beginning... uh it reads like a novel in many ways. Uh, In the the chapter on mania, when you're describing your trip out to Oklahoma to speak with a group of judges there, I was so worried that it was going to go south.
0: (laughs) Well, I really appreciate your reading uh, it so closely. Uh, Yes, I was supposed to speak to uh, very large group of federal judges who are quite intimidating. I was supposed to speak about mental illness and I got manic on the way there. Mania is is one of the mood swings you get in bipolar disorder where you're euphoric and blissful and you're on top of your game, but you also become very reckless and your judgment goes out the window. So I ended up sort of regaling the judges with a story that had nothing to do with the speech I had prepared. But it went well in the end.
1: What do you mean when you say that when you're manic, every dullard is bewitching?
0: (laughs) Well, when you're manic, you find the world absolutely fascinating. Every detail is amplified, and every person just seems so interesting to you. You just can't get enough of people and uh, experiences in general, sensations particularly. So people just become um, much more interesting than they probably
1: are. All the more reason to have what you call your manic cheat sheet.
0: Yes very important. I carry around uh, 10 rules of what not to do when I manic. Um, For example, getting my hair cut short, that's something I always want to do when I manic, you know, get a little pixie cut like in Rosemary's Baby. But there are other more important things because you can be very, uh, as I said, reckless and you can endanger yourself. You can act out sexually. You can spend all your money, which I've certainly done in the past. Um, you just don't take very good care of yourself and you don't observe other people's rules or laws. So it's a good idea to carry around a reminder of that.
1: Also, when people are depressed, they don't always take good care of themselves. And you say that depression often manifests itself with self-neglect.
0: Yes, it does. And that's a very, very difficult part of depression, um, Part of that is because it's very hard to move. There's something called psychomotor retardation that happens in depression where your body and your will just become almost paralyzed. And it's extremely difficult just to get out of bed or to do the simplest task, like brushing your teeth feels like. It's going to take an eternity, and a toothbrush is just so heavy, and getting in the shower becomes this major enterprise, so it's very easy to neglect your self-care when you're depressed.
1: What kind of help do you get, uh, among other things, from reading The Art of War?
0: Well, The Art of War was given to me by a partner at the law first law firm I worked at, and The important lesson I learned from that was know your enemy. And for Mm -hmm. me, that means knowing when I'm depressed that it's depression talking. That voice in my head is not real. Well, it's very real, but it's not realistic. It's telling me things that are not really true. Um, And I need to know that enemy when it comes to call. The same with mania. You really... A person with mental illness and particularly bipolar disorder needs to know the course of their illness, the symptoms, the triggers, in order to really help themselves get better.
1: We're talking with Terry Cheney about her book, Modern Madness, an owner's manual. And for people who aren't familiar with bipolar disease, it's not just about the extremes. And you write very eloquently about uh, what you call the mixed state. And uh, I have to think preparing for that and dealing with that. It's got to be an incredibly rough ride.
0: A mixed state is the worst part of being bipolar, and most people don't know what it is. I certainly didn't for many, many years. It took a lot of research to find out. It is when the worst of mania and the worst of depression collide in your mind. So you've got all this self-loathing and and, uh, lethargy and just, lack of hope that you have in depression, but then you have all this restless um, sort of impulsivity that you get with mania, and when those two things collide, it is bad news because it's when the most suicides happen. You have the energy to act on your horrible impulses and your horrible thoughts, so it's, it's a very dangerous state.
1: Suicide is such a problem in this country. I, I work with high school students, and we have an epidemic of, of suicides among young people. And you say that suicide often has little to do with the people around you.
0: Well, it's hard to explain to anyone who hasn't had a suicide attempt. But when I attempted suicide, my the, the pain from my depression and my mind was so strong, I, I just had to do something to get rid of the pain. I didn't think for one minute about the people I was going to devastate um, or the consequences I was leaving behind. I just simply had to get rid of the pain. So I, I think, although many people do give out warning symptoms, and you should always take warning signs rather. And you should always take those seriously. You shouldn't blame yourself for a suicide. It's usually the pain that's triggering it.
1: Even with all the increased awareness we have about the, the prevalence of mental, mental illness in this country, there's still a stigma attached. Why is that?
0: I'll tell you, I do not understand stigma and mental health to me. As I described in my description of depression, um, it is a very physical illness, just as physical as, say, hypothyroidism, which I also have and nobody thinks anything about. I mean, the brain is just a three-and-a-half-pound organ, and bipolar disorder and mental illness are disorders of the brain. In bipolar disorder, you have a chemical imbalance with certain neurotransmitters that just aren't firing correctly. And why people have to make that distinction between mental and physical just makes no sense to me. I find it very frustrating.
1: Uh, The part of the book that I I found perhaps most fascinating is making relationships work when when in a relationship with someone with mental health issues. And you say never give up hope. That's vital. But as it is in so many other relationship issues, you got to listen to people and don't be so quick to just offer advice until you've listened at least first.
0: That is a cause of mine. I'm so glad you brought that up. It's human nature to want to give advice when someone is suffering. But I'll tell you, Advice is probably the worst thing you can do because it makes the person who's struggling shut down. They feel guilty that they can't take your advice. Uh, they've probably already thought of what you're telling them. But if you just say five little words, sit down with the person and say, tell me where it hurts. Mm. Tell me where it hurts. will open a person up and let them get some of that darkness and despair that's inside them out. And when that darkness hits the light, it dissipates somewhat. And you will be amazed. I guarantee it. I've seen it over and over again, just sitting down saying, tell me where it hurts and then listening without trying to fix it. It's something that I think is not understood well enough by most people.
1: Terry, what do you mean when you say talk therapy is a (laughs) striptease?
0: Well, if it's good talk therapy, you will end up naked. (laughs) Um, If it's really good talk therapy, you are going to be unveiling yourself uh, in a safe place with someone who really cares and listens. And I think that's why um, therapy is sexy.
1: I love this part that toward the end of the book, uh, you say that uh, uh, to make this work, you accept that being human encompasses both good and bad, darkness and light.
0: Yes, I I think I had to come to that realization that there is a reason nature encompasses darkness and light as well. I mean, we're just mirrors of nature. And for me to feel good, I have to know I, the the darkness and the pain. I have to really understand that it is part of a balance, and really what we're seeking is that balance, not the predominance of happiness or of pain, but of really the absence of pain is what I consider pleasure.
1: The book is Modern Madness, and Owner's Manual. It's a powerful and important book. Terry Chaney, thank you so much for making time for us this afternoon. It's been a real delight for us to talk with you.
0: Well, thank you for reading my book so closely. I, and I'm going to listen to your theme song now.
1: Terry Chaney talking about her book, Modern Madness, and Owner's Manual. Our thanks to Terry and also to Michael Ian Black, who discussed his great new book, A Better Man, a Mostly Serious Letter to My Son. And thank you for joining us this week. We'll see you next time here on Downtown, the podcast.